Sherry, there's someone sitting in your seat. I know. I'm not in the hot seat today. <laughs> yeah, the, the torturous hot seat. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. I'm Matt Salis, here with my wife, Sherry Salis, and we're joined by our good friend, Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hi, guys. We, uh, I'll just say this right off the top. I, obviously, I said we're sitting across from each other, so you know we're in the same room. If we sound a little muffled... No one has shoved a burlap sack over any of our heads in an attempted abduction. We are just, we're just wearing our masks because we're inside. Uh, my, our kids are homeschooling in different rooms, so we are inside with doors shut in this small little room, but we are wearing our masks and doing our part. Yep. Tracy, so glad you could be here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think your story is important and we want to we want to hear it. We want to dive in. Um, I want to start in kind of a strange place. Maybe it's strange. I don't know. But I've known you for many years, and yes, we've had many conversations. And I don't know if I know the answer to this. So that's what makes a podcast different than you know. Most of the time, well, I guess in court, right? If they if the lawyer asks you a question, <laughs> they supposedly already know the answer. I have no idea what the answer to this question is. I want to know about your relationship with alcohol. You, you, you are the wife of someone who has a, you know, a, he's in sobriety from a drinking problem and has been in sobriety for a while. But what's your relationship with alcohol? And maybe go back over the years. Were you once a big partier and then that tapered off? And how do you feel about alcohol now? Um, so growing up, alcohol in my home was rare. I think um, my mom had grown up with a father that she adored that was an alcoholic, so she just didn't imbibe. And then my dad, um, because of religion, grew up in kind of a dry county. Okay. In Colorado? In Texas. Okay. So I knew, um, you know, my dad would have a beer occasionally on Friday nights uh, when he carpooled before he got home, uh, if he wasn't driving. I think they would put... um, some Baileys in their coffee on Christmas morning. And then probably once a year, my dad would get together with his old high school and college buddies and they would relive tales of their misadventures that were fueled largely by alcohol. Sure. In particular, a beverage called the Skip and Go Naked, (laughs) (laughs) which was all the rage. Um, That's a mixed drink? That's a mixed drink. Yeah, I've heard of that, but I don't know what's in that. That's... I don't either, but apparently it was fabulous. I guess so. Um, it's got a fabulous and, name. And it makes you, you know, skip and go naked. Yeah. Skip and go Drink it and you're skipping naked. So when I got to college, just kind of fueled by those stories mm-hmm. and every 80s movie you saw about college, I thought when you get to college, you drink. You drink and you party. And so I started down that path. In the 90s, the beverage was called the uh, Purple Passion. Oh, yeah. Um, then, and I just couldn't do it. Oh, I no. mean, I couldn't function the next day. Yeah. I would be so sick. I just couldn't handle the alcohol on a biological level. Okay. But I kept trying. <laughs> and I kept trying to the point I wasn't going to class 
And so my first semester of college, I flunked out and ended up back home in shame. Mm. (laughs) And um, And, and the Purple Passion was a leading contributor to the flunking out? The Purple Passion was a leading contributor to that. For, for For our listeners that... Tracy and Sherry and I are all basically the same age. So for our younger listeners, this was it came in a two-liter bottle. It, it looked like purple soda. Yes. That, that's the way you... Oh. Well, I, yeah, and it had Everclear. And oh, I... No. Okay, so, so I'm different? a couple years no, older No, it just hurts me when you talk about Oh, okay. It. So I'm a couple yeah, years older than you, Tracy. So back in high school in the 80s, I graduated in 89, like Purple Passion, and they had a Peach Passion. I mean, I seriously have labels... Of Purple Passion, because you could get them in, like, soda bottles, like glass That's, soda bottles yeah. then, oh, or aluminum cans, and the two-liter. So, yeah, I have labels in my senior memory book, because Purple Passion was my thing. They were absolutely targeting but children. You, yes. I mean, it, they totally it, it were. It was soda. Yeah. That, so, that I, I can understand with all the sugar that was in there, that's one of the reasons you couldn't oh, make it. Oh, it went down yeah. so easy. It yeah. was so easy, and then yeah. you had all that sugar headache the next day. Ugh. It wasn't Brutal. just the sugar, and you know, I, I felt like I had derailed my whole future because mm-hmm. I had worked so hard, probably harder than other people, to get into a four-year university, <laughs> and so I, um, I never really touched alcohol after that. Really, I would have a beer on occasion. You know, when I turned twenty-one, I had a beer. Or, you know, I still like a little Baileys in my coffee on Christmas morning, as per tradition. Mm-hmm. But I never touched it really after that. So I eventually went into um, community college and took a class where I met my husband. And uh, I just thought he was lovely. He was very quiet, very cerebral. And then I got to know him, and he was very um, funny and ornery and silly. Um, and he <laughs> he had he used fabric handkerchiefs, okay, like my grandfather, and that just sealed the deal. It's one for of those me. endearing things. Huh? Yes, he was kind of old fashioned in the way that I felt like I was old fashioned. You know, we melded on a lot of different ideologies about life and things, and we were off and running, you know? That might be the cutest story. <laughs> I'm not kidding, Tracy. First of all, I think it would be, I think it's valuable for listeners to know that Sherry and I love your husband. We, <laughs> we are big fans of your husband, so um, any story like that just is really touching but that's the that might be the cutest that's the reason the fabric hankies Mm -hmm. cloth hankies yeah yeah so very cool so when when you met you had already experienced your your purple passion year basically (laughs) sworn off the stuff was your husband a, a drinker when you met in community college or was it was it noticeable, I guess, is, is the way I would ask that. No, not in any marked, marked way. You know, I was 21 when we met, so it would be very customary for a few of us to go to a bar nearby and get a beer after class. Mm-hmm. And it was always a beer or two, you know? It was nothing above that, mm-hmm. really. And so uh, I didn't notice anything like that about him. He wasn't a heavy drinker at the time, and... We started courting, and, you know, it was a beer here or there. Sure. 
Um, and then we got married and he, I noticed he had this pattern where he would drink to relax and then he would kind of overdo it uh-huh. and he would abstain for a while. Okay. So these would happen, this would happen probably in a yearly cycle. Like it was a real slow build to the point where he felt like he overdid it and he'd abstain. And we kept going well, on the cycle, but they would get shorter. The cycles would get... And I'm talking It would over, happen more quickly. Yeah, and I'm talking over probably 15 years. So when he would abstain, like at the beginning of this, yeah. of these cycles, was it for a week or a It'd month? It'd be for or? months. Really? I mean, months and months and So months. he would build to this overdoing it point, and then... I mean, did he talk about... Would he tell you... I'm ashamed of the behavior, or I'm worried, or did he just cut it off and you just had to kind of notice that he wasn't drinking anymore? I would just have to notice. Okay. And I think this is something that was happening internally for him. I mean, when we talk about him drinking and our relationship, he was never violent. He was never verbally abusive. He was never angry. He was happy. Mm-hmm. He was sloppy. Sure. But... Um, so those cycles didn't really impact me too much. Okay. Just something that happened where he woke up and went, Ooh, I'm overdoing it. I'm pulling back the reins. It's so interesting because of the progressive nature of alcoholism that we're all familiar with. The way you described that the cycles would, would get kind of tighter. The buildup would, wouldn't take as long. The abstinence would come quicker. And then when he would start to drink again, he would get back at it. I don't know that I've ever heard, you know, that particular pattern, but it fits so well with the fact that we know alcoholism to be a progressive disease. He's just building toward this ultimate whatever it's going to be. Well, and within those cycles, there were, you know, as these cycles are building, life for us got complicated, and then it got really hard. Okay. So probably, I don't know, within a week of me discovering I was pregnant with our first child, he decided he needed to go back to school and get a um, a law degree. Okay. So he was working full time and then he was gone doing night school and this went on for four years. And then, um, you know, he gets done, decides maybe that's not where his passion is, but you still have the loans. <laughs> yeah. Right? From law school. So there was a good chunk of time that he's either working full-time and going to school or he's working full-time and he has a second or sometimes third job. To pay off the loans and just keep things moving forward. keep things moving forward. So he didn't really have the time to drink, to relax and to drink, right? So those are... He just wasn't there either. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't there and I felt incredibly lonely during those times. Um, raising a kiddo and a second and a third kind of all on my own because it was just he wasn't there he wasn't physically there yeah Mm -hmm. um then I'm sure after when he is there with that much you know you're physically tired you're mentally tired yeah so when you are at home he's sleeping eating and trying to get a little bit of relaxing and so it just makes you feel like you're a single parent even when he's there in the house. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because was... you're still taking every bit of all the work. Yeah, like... and it was difficult for me to justify because 
I worked part-time up until our third child was on his way. And then I just couldn't, you know, you're outnumbered as a couple when you have three. Right. And certainly as a single, you know, entity, most of the time you're outnumbered. Right. So I focused on staying home with the kids for probably a good, I was out of the workforce for a good decade. And that just meant he had to work harder because we had no income coming from my end. Right. And the tools of, you know, three kids Mm -hmm. uh, financially. So um, that was difficult. And then it got really hard because my, our oldest child was diagnosed with a pretty severe mental illness at about, I think she was officially diagnosed at 14, but even starting at age 11, she was really starting to struggle um, and talking about suicide. And it took all that time to get a proper diagnosis. But in those years, it was absolutely brutal. It was brutal for everybody in the house. Sure. And I feel like um, he was still kind of working the way he was working. So it was me. I mean, he would take the kids. But in those years, she was hospitalized. Probably she made six attempts on her life. Two of them while she was at school. And she had one psychotic episode. And... uh, became violent with a sibling who was I'll cry because it's just the pain of those years for me and just feeling like because he wasn't present because he was working um is so much you know it's so difficult yeah absolutely and so you know I barely felt like I was getting um getting by raising the the three kids and then when you have something go wrong like that and just it was me and and my child so I felt absolutely flayed yeah emotionally by those years and um just the toll that emotionally that took on me and the focus that it took the focus on surviving those years yeah And getting everybody through those years, really, there was no focus on the marriage. Yeah. At all. And those years were so difficult to do alone, but for him, they were harder to, they were harder. I mean, it was almost harder for him to process that emotional toll. And so that made the drinking worse. Right? Um, So you you said when he... uh first when he was working all those extra hours there wasn't really time for the alcohol but now in this period when there's all this family stress he's he's finding time to to fit the the medication in there absolutely yeah so he's working extra but then he's also drinking more to self-medicate sure um through this time and i didn't notice i mean again my focus was on keeping my child alive literally yeah literally wow And um, I didn't notice. So um, it was really rough. What? And it doesn't sound like 
I mean, you described your husband as being kind of quiet and, and shy at the beginning to begin with. He's working these extra hours. He's self-medicating. You're dealing with the kids. What what role is communication playing in this? I know you said I know you're not focusing on your marriage at this point. I understand that, but is the communication a, a challenge even just as it relates to your daughter and the other kids and keeping it going? You know what I'm you, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. I think if I am honest. Communication has always been a bit of a struggle for us. And I think it goes back to um, the ways... I I hate the word codependency. Okay. Because to me, when that word is brought up, it makes me feel like that something about the drinking is my fault. Mm-hmm. And I just felt for many years like I was the victim. Yeah. But I'm realizing that... Um, the way we communicate is where our where our problem kind of is, and that's where the codependency is. So he would shut down to not feel the anxiety mm-hmm. of what was going on or what we were talking about, and I would go into overdrive where I wanted to control it to help my anxiety. We're really kind of broken in the same way. And so mm-hmm. communication is where that really is noticeable. Right? So I would go into overdrive, trying to control, trying to fix, trying, and he would shut down. Uh-huh. It makes me too engaged, anxious to engage. Okay. And so that um, is how we communicate. He was shut down. I was trying to control everything, and he was just hands off. Hands off. So I'm giving sh- it all to you. And I'm sure the working pressure. and the working extra was a way and he felt like extra. he can contribute, he can do you know play his part and do the best he can for the family absolutely when when the other you know not only are you in control of the other parts and trying to be in control of the other parts but i mean i know how i would feel i would feel like if i can't do this at least i can go over here and do this and and keep us financially you know in in a good position absolutely and when i say that he was out of it it he was physically there Mm -hmm. for some, you know, for a lot of it, he would take the little kids. If I had to take, to take my daughter to the emergency room, um, he was there. He would watch the little kids. Sometimes he would take shifts because it can take up to four days to get a room when you're in a psych bed, even a pediatric one. Um, so he would take shifts. He would listen to the meetings but the part that was difficult is there was no emotional buy-in. Yeah, yeah. There was no... And when I say shut down over communication, I would we would both sit in these meetings with her care team, and they would give us choices for how to go forward with our, with our care. Mm-hmm. And I would say, what do you think? What do you think? And he would say, whatever you think is best. Mm. Right? Yeah. And then I would just go nuts trying to See, control and, it. And I've been there too. Not in as severe a situation, but I've deferred to Sherry and felt like a hero for doing so yeah. because I felt like how can we how can she be mad at me if if she gets to make the decision here? This is in her best interest and my best interest because by not, you know, being the bull in the china shop and insisting on A, B, and C and letting her decide 
I felt like I was doing the right thing, and I only later learned that you just felt completely unsupported, right, Sherry? Yeah, I felt like you were leaving all of that and the responsibility and the research all in my hands, and you couldn't even give me your opinion. So I felt like, wow, you just, you know, like I just felt like it was just you dumping more responsibility on me when, when really, and maybe for you, Tracy... It was just, you just wanted to have his input. You just wanted to be connecting. Like, what do you think is the best plan? Me doesn't always have to go with your way or his way. It's just, what do you think is is a good plan for this? So you're feeling like you're still having to do all the research. You're still having to learn and, you know. And it's exactly it. it. That's exactly it. And in an odd way, I would have hated it if he would have said, this is what I think we should do because that's a challenge to my control to and control trying it. to manage my own anxiety through control. Mm-hmm. So it was a double-edged sword for him, really. Yeah. He's kind of damned you, if he did and damned if he didn't. The fact that you recognize that is really quite impressive. Well, that's, a new, that's a new uh, revelation. Okay. Like it wasn't well, happening good. in the moment. But, but it wasn't after, happening in you know, the moment. What is it now? Almost a decade now, you're like realizing, you know... That you would have. Yeah. You would have been hurt by his input. I think I would have probably, you know, been annoyed even just because I would have, like, if I were in your shoes, I would have realized how much he had been out of it emotionally invested and then come in and put his two cents worth, even though I'm asking for it. Yep. So, yeah, you're right. It is like that challenge to your control. It's a challenge to the control. And, you know, eventually we got some help and things calmed down a bit and for me I was always much better in the crisis than I was in the calm and I noticed then in the calm the real uptake in the drinking you know he had landed a job that paid him enough that he could work one job okay so he was working one job he had more free time things were calmer in the house um, just because the bulk of the um, the kind of psychosis and suicide attempts had died down. There was still all the carnage in the aftermath, mm-hmm. but it was calmer. And that's really when the drinking started. And it mm. started in the guise of relaxing. Sure. Right? And He had more free time, but he was also still carrying all this kind of pain and stress and anxiety. Yeah, and the challenges. I mean, he, you know, his childhood was really rough in some spots. And one of those spots is that his biological mother had the same diagnosis as our daughter. So to have those two things be entwined for him. I mean, he could barely look at her some days. Oof. Because it was such a reminder, I think, on a even unconscious level of his biological mother. Now, is this stuff that you deduced, or did, did he talk to you about this? This is, well, we don't talk about feelings, Matt. Okay. That's the other way we're broken, kind of similarly, you know. Um, but he'd numb it. Boy, he'd numb it. He was numbing then both the anxiety and the emotional not just from the trauma that the illness had caused, but from trauma from his childhood. Yeah. And that's when he couldn't come out of that cycle, right? He couldn't come to a period where he'd gone, I'd overdone, I'm, I've overdone this. 
I'm going to pull back. So he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't go through those periods where he abstained at all. And that's when I started to go, I think this might be a problem. But he was still going to work. Yeah. He was not drinking on the weekdays, only on the weekends. And that didn't look like the picture of alcoholism that I knew. Right? Again, going back to all those 80s movies. Sure. He wasn't a fall down. Yeah. Not make it to work. Binge. Didn't get a drink. He wasn't physically abusive. He wasn't living under a bridge. Fit. Tick any of those boxes. And when you're talking, you know, I, I did a lot of education about mental health when my daughter got sick. You know, one of the things that you look as a barometer of whether something is really a problem is if it affects daily functionality. Mm-hmm. And we weren't there. Yeah. So I wasn't but sure what I was seeing. It's interesting to me. I'm fixated on Robin Williams and his whole story. And one of the things, one of the ways he described alcoholism at one point was that alcoholism is when your behavior deteriorates faster than your ability to lower your standards. And I, I, I bring that up because um, the fact that he couldn't come out of those cycles and have that period of abstaining, he had dropped a standard for himself somewhere along the lines because, and this is the same thing that happened to me, but somewhere along the lines you get to the point where the same alarm bells go off oh you know i've overdone it but you instead of reacting with oh i need to take a break i'm gonna abstain for a little while you go you know fuck it or whatever i'm gonna keep going even though i've even though i've set the alarm bells off that i've done in the past so it's just you know it's so interesting to me how we do when we talk about dropping our standards or dropping our behavior it's not always drinking in the morning or drinking on your way to work or it's not always this just terrible you know uh drive it into a ditch kind of a thing it's it's just the changes that we make to our patterns and ourselves that are an indication that we're progressing on a bad path and it might be a long time till we get to the the dui or the you know, the crash and burn, but that doesn't mean, you know, that the alarm bells aren't going off and there is something that we should be doing about it. I just think that's fascinating that those, those cycles with the abstaining at the end and the abstaining at the end went away and he started to just kind of accept. Yeah. I I overdrink sometimes, whether he said that to himself consciously or not. Well, and I think accepting it at that time too, he was strictly kind of beer. And during that period, I noticed we, we added some whiskey. So it's like the beer wasn't even enough. So we started to add hard liquor. Yeah. And that's really when things would get kind of rough. Yeah. You know, and that was, again, the weekends. It wasn't anything during the work week. But, and in that time when that alcohol was involved, he would, all of that, I feel like, resentment that he was holding for our oldest and the illness that she was going through, he would lash out. And so that, um, that was tough. You know, she already, I felt like, had this voice in her head, everybody does, but hers was so strong, saying you're worthless, you have no control, and to have your dad 
add to that voice was unacceptable to me. So at that point, I started to go, I'm going to control this. I'm going to control the drinking. You're going to drink. If you're going to drink, you're going to do it separate. And you're going to do it and not have interaction with the children. Yeah. And you're gonna, we're going to contain it to Friday and Saturday nights. That was my agreement. And, of course, he couldn't keep it. Did he agree to it, though, even though it's, you know, unkeepable? Yeah, was that... he's kind of an odd duck in that if he verbally agrees to do something, he's going to do it. Right? And he's going to do it to his fullest. Okay. So I would just kind of lay down this boundary and he would be silent. Okay. okay. Right? So he's not committing, and that was so frustrating for me. But then he's not. Because I want your word, because then I know you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think he knew in his silence that he couldn't keep it. I think he knew. And because he can't open up and talk to you, he can't say, I, I can't, I can't contain it. I know that I would love to have these boundaries too, but I can't keep it because I know that I'm too far yeah. gone. But he's, he's also not willing to do what 99% of us do, which is just blatantly lie. And right. say, yeah, fine, but, fine, I'll do that, and then not be able and to then do just, it. Yeah, so there's, there's a piece of it that's lied. admirable about that. Mm-hmm. And he never lied. Did he hide his alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't want me to see how much. And I, I, Matt and I were just talking about that last night, ironically. Um... I said I feel like there are a lot of fam- a lot of people I know that get lied to about drinking. Matt never hid the fact that he was drinking. He would hide how much, oh, yeah. or he would hide that he was taking sips of the really gross warm gin that would be in the cabinet for his dad when the, his dad would come to town. But he never lied and made it seem like he wasn't drinking. I just, you know, so... So I, I I don't know what I would do if I had that added piece, the line to the relationship of like you're crazy. I'm not drinking. You're you know, he'd be like, yeah, I had a couple of beers, but you know, it could be seven. Yeah, you know? I definitely lied about. But you lied about that. But you never said, you know, no, I'm not drinking, or you would well, not come home, or you would, you know. I honestly never had confidence in myself to get away with that. That's probably the only thing that kept me from lying. It wasn't. I mean, Tracy, with your husband. Because we know him so well and because of what you're sharing, I get the sense that there was an ethical, moral, you know, He's just incapable. A, he he is, he is not going to lie. And that is, goes for white lies, too. I mean, he just can't do it. You know, honey, how does this outfit look? Oh, change. You know, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. yeah he well, just that's a really admirable it. characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. I, if, I, if I had thought... I mean, because you're right, Sherry, so many of the cases that we're familiar with, there's just blatant... Like lying. That's why vodka is the drink of choice because that's the one people think they can get away with because it doesn't smell as much. I just never thought I could fully get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about communication, and I'm. I I do want to mention this. Yeah, yeah, lack thereof. But, but like what we just talked about, the inability to lie. The other thing that I, I I think it's important for listeners to know: your husband knows you're here. Your husband knows you're doing this. He does. He, in fact, he listens to some of these podcasts. He and, does. And, I mean, I don't know. I, I'll i be honest, Tracy, I was a little surprised when I was super excited when we started talking about this and, and the fact that you were willing and, and interested. But Sherry and I said, you know, it's very important to us that Tracy's husband 
is on board and that didn't take any time at all he agreed right away he did so there's i don't know it's there's some willingness or there's some piece of communication there whether it's all unspoken or not i don't, I don't know how to describe it but there's something about that that like like he's he he doesn't want to tell the story but he's okay with you telling it that that somewhat fascinates me well, and I think it's, a, again, it's a 365-degree turn from where we were at the time where he was drinking and not being able to pull back and, and, and not being able to contain it. I mean, at that time, if I would have said to our children, your dad's been drinking or your dad is drunk, even to name it to our own children who right. are living and seeing it, mm-hmm. he would have been so upset. Oh, yeah. And he didn't, he didn't want me to see talk to anybody about it he didn't want me to use the words yeah and to be okay with me coming to use the words and talk about the experience is huge yeah Yeah. and it it's just um how much he's grown especially from the denial i mean the denial at that time that there was an issue was an issue sure between us absolutely just this denial and um let's talk about that a little bit so you're so things have calmed down a little bit with your oldest and there's and he's working one job now he's got more time and you've got more time to kind of notice what's going on too so tell us a little bit about you must have clearly started to know there was a big problem before he did and so you 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 try the plan of limiting it to Friday and Saturday nights. Yep. But was there talk of this needs to go altogether at that point? There wasn't because I was fr- he didn't think it was an issue and mm-hmm. I thought it was an issue and I thought you know you're overreacting is something that was thrown around a lot and I was thinking maybe I was. Sure. I was overreacting. This is what people do to relax. And at the same time, you know, still feeling incredibly lonely. It's such an odd thing to be married for as long as we are to feel so lonely. And you're talking about Robin Williams. One of my favorite quotes is the there's worse things. The wor- worse than being alone is being with people that make you feel alone. Yes. And I felt so alone in our life. We've yeah. come through this big crisis and things were better. But at any moment... They could flare up. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very unpredictable, our life at that time. Right. As far as the needs of everybody around us. So, you know, the denial was difficult. And then I did one of the smartest things I could have done, and I went to therapy. Okay. But it wasn't it wasn't um, couples therapy. It was individual therapy. Right. And it was kind of in the guise of... Um, just getting support for how stressful my life was. But it ended up being a lot about the drinking and is it a problem or isn't it a problem and how to make boundaries and how to listen to your own voice. I think the number one thing that helped me was we all have that voice in our head, like I was talking about with our daughter, that says all those hateful, ugly things. You know, you're not smart enough. Yeah. You're you're overreacting. And just working on myself to calm those voices. When those doubts would come up about or my husband's drinking, 
I could I could deal with them. I wouldn't let those voices in, those voices of doubt that I already had. And so and, and the therapy helped. And helped the therapist for me helped. Now did you when when you first when you had your first session, I assume uh, you're you're there to talk about your oldest daughter and all the trauma that that's created. But you, you were able to work it in or the therapist drew it out of you that alcohol in the marriage yeah. was a problem. It was very, you know, I'm, I'm, I was pretty open with everything that my child was going through, that I was going through, that all my children were going through. But I had to work with the therapist for quite a while to get enough trust up to say, I think my husband is an alcoholic. Okay. Which is ironic because he's the one I was protecting. Yeah. And so these things kind of happened together. So I was seeing a therapist working on that stuff, which helped. And then a friend of mine named Matt Salis <laughs> came out as an alcoholic. And what you described was exactly what I saw in my husband. And that was functional alcoholism. Yeah. It was a strange concept for me. Sure. But it sure ticked all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah, That that's fascinating because... When you talked about, you talked about how your husband never out and out lied to you, but the the gaslighting can still exist without there being lies. When when he's saying, um, you know, I'm just relieving stress, uh, I'm just trying to relax, I'm relaxing, and everyone does it. Mm-hmm. These are all things that are easy for you to buy into because all you've got to do is open your eyes to the world around you and say, yeah, well. Everyone I know seems to drink, and, you know, probably the men more than the women, although lots of women drink, too. Well, and then, like, and whiskey's adding this nuance because there are all these, you know, really cool, crafted... And we live in Colorado, yeah, so yeah. it's not just the beer people, if you're listening outside of Colorado. There's a lot of, like, distilleries that are local, and it's very, um, what do you call it, like... High end or small batch, yeah, small I think that sort of stuff. Batch, so it yeah. makes it seem like it's more, you know, it's like a wine, you know, connoisseur. So you're so you're adding this level of like, oh, it's sophisticated, it's a, yeah, sophisticated. Yeah, you so, would do that too, but really, it was the cheap stuff, cheap and easy, and as quick to that feeling of mm-hmm. numb euphoria as he could get. Yeah, right? and that was often the cheap stuff. And so you know, you came out. Um, with your with your emails, your yeah. posts, uh, I was going to therapy, and it took me about a month talking to my therapist to invite Sherry Salis out for coffee. Right. And we sat there, and I said to her, my husband is like Matt. And she cried. She cried for me. And she said, for everything you're going on, you don't need this too. Yeah. And I couldn't cry. All of that emotion was so locked down. And she cried for me, and it was like breaking an egg. Oh, my goodness. And we sat there, and she cried, and I watched her, and I went, holy shit, this is a big deal. Yeah. So from then, it it became, thank you, Sherry. (laughs) We're both crying right now. I don't know if you can hear that in... Yeah, but uh, you're um, right. The masks do muffle. Maybe I should wear a uh, mask every time I I cannot. Do this. That was it. That was the final yeah. piece. And yeah. When you told me that, I just I I honestly I just was like floored. I thought, oh my gosh, like, I couldn't do I it for myself. Imagine. But the fact that you would do it for me, I went, holy yeah. crap! And from then on, it was, you know, I went to Al-Anon. Um, I 
loved the piece around um, disconnecting or disengaging with love. In reality, that helped also with my child. Oh, yeah. Because, again, I was so in my codependent cycle of trying to control everything. And it was so hard for me to step back and let them have it. Right? I love you, but I'm out. I'm not controlling this for you anymore. I'm not protecting you from your consequences anymore. And... It was hard. It's got to be harder with a child, even I would imagine, to to do. Yeah, that and there's kind of there's probably a higher floor than there is with yeah. your husband. I mean, it's not like you were leaving her in situations where she could endanger herself, right? But you were letting some of the natural consequences take place. Well, and those were around therapy. You know, there's mm-hmm. things that she should have been doing in therapy that she wasn't. I would try to force her to engage in these tools and and everything, and I step back. Because now she's, let's just mention, like, she's older. She's an older teenager. She's an older teenager. So safety, you know, was still in place. Yeah. Safety. So I think also during this time, I've named that my husband is a functional alcoholic. I know that it's hurting me or acknowledging that it's hurting me. And I can't be in denial. He's still in denial. Right? So he's breaking the boundaries around it. And... I was just thinking about our our history, you know, my mother and his biological sister are the same age. They both had alcoholic fathers and they both have a similar story that they remember about their mothers being so angry, Mm. just trying to shake them into sobriety, into out of this numb state and anger and resentment and I knew a boundary for myself is if I got to that point I wouldn't stay Hmm. I loved him too much to stay and punish him Wow! so I knew at that point I would have to get out I knew for myself that if he continued to have interactions with my oldest that were harmful from a psychological point of view I would have to leave I would have to leave. I would have to choose my children over my husband as much as I love him. Yeah. And that was my biggest fear. But what really broke us was his rock bottom. bottom. What really made me really entertain the idea of leaving wasn't when he hurt the children. It was when he hurt me. And he hurt me in such a way that I don't think I'm still recovered from. So it's, <laughs> it's a little known fact, but you actually medically can be diagnosed with a broken heart. Hmm. So following all these years of chaos, then we had some stability. And then for me, because I think partly I had ignored myself so long, I started to have really big medical issues. Okay. And I had probably three surgeries within 18 months. Mm -hmm. So one night I, you know, my oldest was not in a good place and she was in so much pain. She was lashing out and I was taking it as almost her whipping boy because it was so hard for her to have those feelings internally. And I was very much alone because my husband was numbing out from the drinking and... On the weekends, 
I remember just waiting for him to pass out because then I knew the damage that he could possibly enact in our house was done. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I'm not sleeping. I had gone through this physical stuff and I started to have chest pains. Like, <laughs> luckily it was a weeknight. So he was able to take me to the ER and I thought I was having a heart attack. Oh my God. But it turns out just from years of living in such a stressful situation, the cortisol that you pump continually in your body could damage your heart. Yeah. And it's called stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Wow. So he was still drinking at that point. He was acknowledging the fact that it might be a problem. I had put these boundaries in place, and he knew what my boundaries are, uh-huh. you know. Um, Whether and he agreed to them or not, he was fully aware of them. He knew and what they were, sure. and I think he knew I would hold them. Another one that I made is that he wasn't going to be in charge of the kids if I suspected he was drinking or drunk. And I brought a breathalyzer. So I'm like, I'm going to leave the house for a little bit. I need to know that things are okay. And I suspected one day where, and he was surprised at the number that he blew. Uh And it wasn't any anger at my part going, you'd ruin my day. It was just, I'm calling my mom and she's going to watch the kids. And when you blow a zero, she can go home but I'm going to continue on with what I'm doing uh-huh. and um, it took him six hours to blow a zero and he hadn't had a drink in those six hours but I think that seeing it in black and white yeah. was also something that started to bring him around so we're in the hospital but before you leave that oh, story sorry. no you're fine you, you... <clears throat> you've gone from the point where you can't even say to the kids, hey, dad's been drinking, to your mother's coming over because of a breathalyzer. Yep. So we're really making, you know, progress. Oh, yeah. uh, Was that embarrassing or angering for him that your mother was now involved in that way? No, again, you know, as part of disconnecting with love, you kind of push away the emotion and your emotional need, right? And so it was just practical. Yeah. It was purely practical. And I think he was embarrassed. But at that point, disengaging for me meant that I didn't care. Yeah. I wasn't protecting him anymore. Yeah. And he was never like an angry never sort of angry. person. Like, yeah. So, like, he's very chill. So I'm sure it was more, he kept all of his like feelings like inside of his embarrassment and anger and was like, Kind of also just deferring to you, like when you were sitting in the offices with your daughter's medical team. Well, what do you want to do? He's just still kind of letting you lead in a way and make these decisions. And he has to then have like his own thoughts in his own head because he shut you out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I really thought that's where my breaking point would come. Mm Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It was sitting in the hospital. The cardiologist had just told me that I had this stress-induced cardiomyopathy. And he outlined to my husband while he's sitting there, you need to step it up. She can't carry this burden alone. It is physically breaking her body. It's breaking her heart. Get on it. And I had said to the cardiologist with my husband sitting there, which was huge because I wasn't protecting him anymore, my husband's an alcoholic. I have a kid with a, you know, I have three kids. I have one with a severe psychological 
issue. And he, it was probably 30 minutes when he outlined, you know, you need to step it up. She will die. She will die if you do not step it up. And we got home. You know, I have to say real quick, we hear so many stories of, like, for instance, on intake forms when people are going to the doctor and they check all the boxes about alcohol. You know, do you drink more than three drinks a day? Yes. And they're basically begging for help. And then they go to see the doctor and the doctor doesn't bring up any of the alarm bells. It's really heartening to hear of a cardiologist that recognized that this was serious and and was bold enough to say that. I think that's great. Well, that was a condition of release. And at that point, we had a mouse. We had so much debt and medical bills. I was just anxious to get out of there because I'm seeing dollar signs every minute sure. I'm spending laying in the hospital bed because I was admitted. Yeah. And they had done a cardiac test where they run a scope up through your femoral artery. And he said she cannot drive tomorrow morning to take the kids to school. Mm. So we were discharged. He had all of this advice ringing in his ears from the cardiologist. We got home and it was kind of business as usual. He had disappeared and I thought he was doing laundry, but I had been making dinner um, just because I wanted to get back to normal too. Sure. And um, I went to check on him because dinner was ready and he wasn't coming and he had been drinking and he was passed out in our bed. And I just was so hurt that I was as vulnerable as a human could be. Could possibly be. And this is, could be, and he couldn't step it up. Yeah. For even, it was for one night, you know, for one night he couldn't step it up. And um, the next morning he overslept because he'd been drinking. He was late for work and I said, honey, you're supposed to take the kids. And he said, I'm going to be late for work. And so it was, it was still continuing. It wasn't a whoops. It was still continuing. And that day I called my mom and she came with the kids and I left. I left for probably three or four days. I went to my brothers and, you know, physically they couldn't give me a medication to regulate that kind of um, AFib that I was having kind okay. of thing because it would drop my pulse too low and it's super uncomfortable because you get your heart doing this abnormal rhythm and then you get the panic. So you can feel the fluttering? You can feel it and there was nothing I could take and I laid in the guest room in my brother's house going, what the fuck am I going to do? Right. I mean, I knew, I think prior to that too, you know, I had said, um, probably a week prior to the cardiac event, I had said, I'm done with the alcohol. I'm not done with you. But if you're not done, what are we going to do? Yeah. If you're not done, what are we going to do? And his response wasn't immediate. So in this week, and I think it kind of contributed to the stress that put me over the edge, I was thinking, my God, I'm going to have to leave my husband. I'm going to have to leave. Wow. And how? You know, first of all, it's the grief and the emotional. Sure. Because I still love him. I loved him. But knowing that he might not choose to get better, you know? Yeah. 
And so... And you've got the practical, you talked about the emotion, but you've got the practical side too, the right? You've got the house side. and the kids and he's working and you haven't been in the workforce for quite a while. Oh, yeah. You've got all of that to consider too. So I was laying in, in, in my brother's guest room crying, grieving the loss of what I thought was the loss of my marriage. Sure. And making plans. Like, how can I do this? Mm-hmm. How can I do this? And so I feel like, I started looking at apartments that maybe would work that we could afford. I started looking at jobs I could do. I knew there would be some child support. I mean, I started easing my anxiety by trying to figure it out, how this would look. And I got home after a couple of days. And um, he said, I've I've made an appointment to go in to uh, do an intake at the VA for their addiction counseling. And I was so doubtful. I was doubtful. I mean, I something broke in me that day, the trust that I had in him that hadn't previously been broken. And that's still what we are what I'm fighting to recover. Sure. Sure. Because when you were at your worst and you needed him the most, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Because alcohol had the grip. I think it's important that we recognize this is someone who physically can't lie to you. Yep. Didn't get angry. I, I'm not trying to paint him as a saint, but I love your husband. And he worked extra hard when it was time to work extra hard. So he's got his limitations, certainly. But in every way, every mm-hmm. indicator, he wants to do the right thing. And yet, when he faced that moment of truth and the, the cardiologist said, you need to step it up. He went home and got drunk. He went and that, home and got drunk. That, to me, speaks to the power of this disease as much, if not more, than anything else. This isn't a, you know, just an evil narcissist, awful person that every, everything about them is bad. Right. Everything about him is, is good and pure, except, you know, he's got this childhood trauma and he's got this way to medicate his stuff and the way the medi- to medicate his stuff took over. And and didn't allow him to do what he knew he needed to do at that moment. Absolutely. But then, so you're gone. You you go away. The kids are with your. He has time to process all this, and when you come back, he says he's ready. Yeah, and he, yeah. Subsequently, he said that scared me to death. Oh, I bet that you would actually follow through. Yeah, it scared him into sobriety. That was his rock bottom, and so. Um, I remember he wanted me to go to the intake with him. And I remember outlining in a very calm, non-argument way what it would look like, you know, (laughs) if we were to separate. And at that point, I didn't feel like he could have unsupervised visitation with his kids because that would be on the weekends and we knew the weekends were for drinking. Sure. So I'm like, this is what this would look like, you know. This is what the stakes are, in case you didn't know already. But it wasn't anger I was coming at him with. It was just where I was at. You know, there was no anger. There was no resentment. There really wasn't any hurt that I was telling him about at that point. I think, (laughs) um, and we got into the, the office, um, and did the intake and they wanted to know why he was there he said I'm here for my wife 
And I thought, oh, God, this is never going to work. And it, and it wouldn't if he stayed on that mine. It, this is never going to work. Yeah. You know, he'll be drunk within a week. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't say he was there for me. And, uh, yeah. I remember having a conversation with you shortly after he stopped drinking. I remember you sharing that with me. And you, I, rem, I remember... I remember where we were standing. I remember how, you know, not what's the word? How unsure you were. Yeah, certain. You know, you weren't like, thank God, hallelujah, everything's fixed. He sobered up. You were like, he's not. He's stopped drinking for now. You know, and I think I don't even think you could complete that sentence without adding a but. We don't know where this is going to go, or yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, he stopped drinking for now. That sums it up perfectly, right? For now. For now. Because he thinks he's doing it for me. But maybe he just couldn't say that out loud because he was doing it for you because he needed you. So keeping you in the picture was what he needed, and that's what he really, you know. I mean, does that make sense? Like him saying, I'm doing it for my wife is because he realized how much he needed you, and he needed you to be alive. He, He needed you to be in his life because without you... He wouldn't have anything. He'd be a sad sack of a man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think they all would, Tracy. I think they all would. No, I just... I'm not going to argue. I mean, it took me a very long time, and I'm talking even recently when he's been sober for two years to not wait for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. Because I really didn't think that was enough. Well, is part of it... What? What? Is there a point... And I know communication is strained, but is, is there a point when... You got the feel from him that he was he recognized he was doing this for himself and that getting it, healthy was important to him and it wasn't just for you? It was a long time into it. I mean, I think we're talking probably 15, 18 months before he would say things that I would interpret that he was glad that he was doing it for himself. Just like, I feel so much better. I don't feel so crummy on Monday mornings. Uh-huh. Um, but there was a lot of in-between there. Sure. Where the reality of the anxiety and some of the emotions that he was trying to medicate with the alcohol were right there in his face. Mm-hmm. And that was so hard for him. Oh, for sure. I mean, the one of the things about alcohol, when we use it to medicate, as I did... W- w- the first sign of discomfort from an emotional standpoint... We drown that out with alcohol, and then when we're forced to face the emotions without anything to soothe them, it's it's as though you're, I've said this many times, it's like you're a 15-year-old, that you're that level of maturity, because you, you just, you have no tools for processing emotional roller coaster kind of things, the the goods or the bads, honestly, without without your alcohol and so absolutely and his comment was you know these skills that I've been working on don't work as well they're not as complete you know these coping skills really don't take it all away like the alcohol did yeah and so it was was really hard again for him to to buy into therapy and to use those tools does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's, again, I'm still kind of detached at that point with empathy and love going, that sounds really hard. Yeah. But it, I'm not trying to fix it anymore. Yeah. 
the skills eventually are enough, but you've got to get better at them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not it's not as immediate as alcohol is either. Learning to sit with your stuff that that takes some practice. So so he's over two years sober now, yeah. correct? So a, a lot has transpired in the last few months then. If he's just, you said it, 14, 15-ish, somewhere in there, he started to talk about, well, I feel better. I'm yeah. glad I'm doing this. So this has been a really good last few months, I guess, from that standpoint. Yeah, it just, you know, it has. I think initially, too, if a genie had come out of a lamp you know, even five years ago, and ask me my three wishes. The top two would be a sober husband and a and a child that's well, that's healthy, that's in remission from her illness, right? Those things happened over the class, like last 18 months, but it still wasn't enough for me to feel happy. Yeah, yeah. It was harder. I thought sobriety, like you said, would fix everything. That it would fix this feeling of loneliness, of me feeling like I'm doing my life alone. Yeah. Um, That we would reconnect. And it just didn't happen that way. Well, you've got to recover too. You've got to become healthy too. I've got a couple of questions along those lines. Yes. Um, First, how's your health? Now that the your the stress from your daughter is less and you're hopeful about your relationship and the sobriety of your husband, have you seen tangible effects on your health? You know, the thing with the stress-induced cardiomyopathy <coughs> is you reduce your stress and you wait for it to heal. Yeah. Right? So it was quite a while to, to heal. I still feel when I get super stressed, I get that kind of strange rhythm to my heart. Like I had to turn off the election results on Tuesday because I started oh, getting palpitations. Yeah, so it's like well, uh, that and it's sad. I don't mean to make light, but you guys have wrecked more cars than anyone I know. Like yeah, total well, those cars. Those weren't my fault. But I know it's still <laughs> stressful, isn't yeah. it? Like that's not good for your heart. Yeah, yeah, it's not good for your heart. And you know, I think I'm an anxious person. So a lot of that comes from me too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just naturally occurring. Just naturally occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good barometer. I mean, it's a good physical barometer now, you know my ticker. When you're raising up there that you need to go and take a yeah. step back. You need to relax. When I start to feel those palpitations, it's a good yeah. physical barometer of where I need to be with my stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary yeah. barometer, but... The other thing I want to know about you specifically, as opposed to just the relationship or your husband, you talked about that first time you had coffee with Sherry and she cried Yeah, and you weren't able to yet. And I know you've also shared with me in conversation that sometimes you're afraid that if you start crying, if you open the floodgates, you won't be able to close it down. Are you finding a happy medium there? Are you finding that you're able to deal with the emotions in a, in a way that makes you comfortable? Um, not yet. I mean, I think, again, saying my husband and I are broken in the same way. We just came about it differently. Mm-hmm. So we're both anxious people and we're both really suppressed emotionally. And so I think that's a work in progress. Sure. 
And I, I've gone back since to starting this week, individual therapy. Because I think hopefully that's the key to the unhappiness. It's not really about my husband's sobriety. It's not about our relationship. It's about us individually right now uh-huh. and what we carry from childhood sure. and unpacking that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like getting all this other trauma <clears throat> reduced and out of the way. The, alco- the active alcoholism situations with yeah. your daughter, it allows you to get in there and work on some of your, your stuff that you never had time or, or mental capacity Absolutely. for. Absolutely, I think in crisis... The best that you can hope for is survival. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when things calm down and you're not continually in crisis anymore, survival is not enough. Yeah. So you get the space to look around and go, what do I need now? Yeah. And that's terrifying in itself. It's also just a tremendously healthful and helpful message, though. The lack of crisis is not an indication of success. It's an indication that that's when you can do the work. Because you're not just fighting to keep your head above water. That's the hard part. That after the crisis, when things are calm is the hard part. Yeah. It's not the crisis. Yeah. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. I think it, it, it uncovers. And I mean, I hope for you and your husband that... I like how you said you grieved for the marriage that you had and alcohol kind of robbed you of that. And I know that you both in the beginning of your relationship were connected. Like you had good conversations. You shared a lot. And I'm hoping that, you know, that as the alcohol subsides and you both get healthy, then you can have that connection again. And I am hopeful because I think, I think that, you know, alcohol just robbed you of all that and you kind of fell out of practice and out of step with, communicating with each other absolutely and i think and that's what's hard is getting back into that original routine well i don't even i think we were communication these issues that i'm realizing we both share the ways we're broken existed from the beginning it's just now almost 25 years in it's not acceptable anymore to me and i think we've always been friends even through all the shit and the hurt and the chaos we've always been friends but I think, um, you know, an intimate relationship requires more. Like, people say, I married my best friend. That's great. But marriage is harder than friendship. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah. And so hopefully, the fact that we are friends um, will give us a higher floor than yeah. starting out with. Yeah. You're not starting out from you can't stand them. Right. You know, you're, you're already at a good level. But, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the hard thing is when you realize how much alcohol robs your relationship and that you have to do this grieving process and how, like, you internalize there is a grieving process. And it kind of helps you with the, the anger of doing that grieving. Well, that's the beauty of looking at your individual crap. <clears throat> Is you go, were my expectations, at least for me, were my expectations for marriage realistic to begin with? Like, the more that I I go, you know, I feel like my husband has really hurt me emotionally because he wasn't there for me. But when I start to pull on that thread, that goes way farther back. Sure. Than just my relationship with him. 
And, you know, to be honest, if we had been dating and he had said, let's talk around, let's sit and talk about our thoughts and feelings, I want to run out of there faster <laughs> than my legs could, you know, could carry me. Yeah. Because that's where where I was broken. And again, I don't think codependence is such a dirty word anymore. Wow. See, my feeling about codependence is I feel like it's a catch-all. Because if you look at the list of codependence, you know... The traits of the codependence. Traits, it's endless and conflicting. It's like the same thing. You know, be one thing and then the opposite the next. And I'm like, that's just a catch-all phrase. But, but it's not a terrible word. Because we all do it in different ways. Yeah. Well, the bottom line and is... And it starts early on. You have an area in your life where you don't have control, so you try to control everything else. And if there's a more natural reaction to a traumatic situation, I don't know what it is. I mean, that that just seems like human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have one last question. Yes. I, I am very proud to be your friend and I'm very proud to be your husband's friend and I'm very proud of the progress that you guys are making are you at a point where you can feel that pride for yourself and for your husband and for your marriage I think so I mean it's it's been a long road right sure and I was thinking about this the other day I don't know. I'm at a place where I'm finally ready to look at myself. Really look at myself in a way that other people don't maybe get to in their life. But it's come from all of this chaos. Sure. It's come from all of this illness. And in a way, I'm grateful because I wouldn't be here ready to... to wade through what I need to to maybe live my best life going forward. Yeah. So, I'm grateful. And that's what I would hope for everybody that is dealing with this. There's so much truth to that. There's so many people that have, you know, kind of crested that trauma mountain and as they cross over to the other side will say, I don't know why, but I feel lucky for having gone through this. You know, to, I, I don't like the word recovery. I know Sherry doesn't like the word recovery. I, I just don't think it's descriptive. It it allows us to, you know, work on personal growth and enlightenment and whatever whatever word you want to use to to develop into this this thing and this person that, like you said, most people if if the trauma wasn't significant enough, they don't even, you know, it's hard it's hard to fix something you don't know is broken. Mm. And you you can be broken without knowing it. But yeah. once you know you're broken, you kind of got to deal with it. Yeah, you would hope so. To have any quality of life, you do. Yeah. Or you can you can numb it. And we know what that looks like, don't we? Yeah. We do <laughs> you know? indeed. We do yeah. indeed. Wow. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you. you. Your story is super powerful and impacting. And I'm really glad that you came and told it. Well, thank you. And I feel, I just have to say this, as a, a good friend of your husband's and someone who adores your husband, I, I feel, I hope, if and when he listens to this, I hope he feels like we were respectful and did him justice because I feel like we did, we were and did. And, yeah. And uh, 
It's just been great to have you. Thanks for coming on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All You're, right. We might have to have you back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, update status. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. We got to keep tabs on you. So thank you, Tracy, for my wife, Sherry Salis. I'm Matt Salis, and we thank you for listening to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast.